This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name's Jeff Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at Vanderbilt University. Today, the topic that I want to discuss are some of the pharmacology issues of the treatment of shock. In some previous episodes of our podcast, we've talked about issues of septic shock, and we've talked about the use of fluids and vasopressors. And in in this uh, particular episode, I want to talk about some basic concepts of shock and what are some of the drug therapies that are used to help treat the cardiovascular uh, effects of the various types of shock. First of all, it's important to discuss what actually is shock. And it's really inappropriate to think of shock as defined by a particular blood pressure. Often we talk about somebody having a systolic blood pressure of 80 or somebody with a mean arterial pressure of 60 uh, uh, or 65 as, as having shock. But really shock is defined as inadequate oxygen delivery for a particular tissue bed. Whenever the oxygen demands of a particular tissue bed exceed that of the uh, oxygen delivery, it's fair to say that the patient is suffering from shock. Now this can actually occur somebody with a normal blood pressure. For instance, if you have somebody who has inadequate uh, tissue delivery to a peripheral bed and then you give them a vasoconstrictor that elevates the blood pressure but in the result of increasing uh, or excuse me, of, of causing increased vasoconstriction decreases the flow to a peripheral tissue bed, you can have shock defined by inadequate to- oxygen delivery even in the face of a normal or improved blood pressure. Now it is fair to say that we typically use blood pressure as the initial evaluation if somebody is in shock and even without a blood pressure cuff a general reflection of blood pressure can be obtained by palpation of the peripheral pulses. A bounding radial pulse readily indicates that your patient is not in shock and this is typically used by folks in the military that if you know that somebody has got a bounding radial pulse you have a systolic blood pressure of greater than 90 and this is widely taught in the uh, American College of Surgeons ATLS course. Another assessment as to whether somebody is in shock is the effectiveness of their cerebral perfusion and that's determined by the patient's mental status. A patient who's thinking clearly is perfusing the brain satisfactorily. With marginal perfusion, clarity of thought is often lost. Now there are several different types of shock and knowing the type of shock that you're treating will certainly help you treat the underlying cause and that was a lot of what we discussed on the episodes about sepsis. That if somebody's hypotensive um, from septic shock and all you're doing is trying to treat the blood pressure, you're clearly missing what's causing the shock. Uh, and we say if the muffler falls off the car, you can turn off the radio, turn up the radio. And they're not aware of the bad muffler, or you can treat the underlying uh, problem, and that is fix the muffler. Well, there are four types of shock. Generally, there's hypovolemic shock, and we'll see this typically in the form of blood loss in a trauma patient, hypovolemia from loss of fluids and plasma in a patient who is a burn victim, or dehydration in a patient who may uh, have diarrhea or even uh, something like a diabetic ketoacidosis. Cardiogenic shock is reasonably straightforward, and typically these are going to be patients who have suffered some sort of myocardial event. Neurogenic shock, uh, typically in people who have had uh, some form of traumatic brain injury uh, or even spinal cord injury. And septic shock, which has been a source of discussion in the two previous podcasts. Now, encountering the patient with hypoperfusion, what you have to decide is which of the four categories most accurately describes the cause of your patient's hypoperfusion and subsequent 
poor auction delivery. In some cases, the source is obvious. If you're taking care of a person who has a gunshot wound to the abdomen and they have no radial pulse, and maybe a weak carotid pulse, the patient's in hypovolemic shock. A patient is 65 years old and, and has a history of heart disease and had a, has a blood pressure of 84 over 58 and told his uh, wife that he was having severe chest pain prior to becoming disoriented is most likely in cardiogenic shock. In some cases a shock it won't be obvious and it's going to require some critical thinking and certainly some investigation. This might occur frequently in a patient who is in shock following blunt force trauma, for instance, like a car accident. And the patient comes and they have some hypoperfusion, but what really happened is they wrecked their car and that resulted in blood loss from something like a ruptured spleen, or are they having chest pain and, and resulted in poor perfusion and that resulted in them wrecking their car. Well, the one thing that is fortunate that regardless of what are the four types of shock that your patient may be experiencing, the initial uh, therapy is, is essentially the same, and that's the initiation of intravenous resuscitation. Now, the initiation of IV resuscitation is something of late that's become uh, rather out of control. Giving somebody IV fluids or giving them IV resuscitation doesn't necessarily mean you're giving them 40 liters of fluid in a period of 12 hours and giving something like abdominal compartment syndrome. Um, so you, you clearly getting intravenous access, starting fluids, but IV fluids are like a drug and you can give an appropriate dose and you can give an overdose. But again, you have to look for what is the underlying cause of that shock and treat the underlying cause of that shock. For instance, if it's hypovolemic shock, you need to control the hemorrhage, provide fluid or blood products. If it's cardiogenic shock, the patient's going to require some fluids, but they'll also require other drugs, such as chronotropes. These are drugs that increase the uh, heart rate. Inotropes, which are drugs that increase the force of contraction of the heart. Vasoconstrictors in some cases, which will obviously cause constriction of the blood vessels, or vasodilators, which will cause dilation of the blood vessels. In neurogenic shock, the patient, again, is going to require fluid, and likely vasoconstrictors. In septic shock, as we've said, again, fluid, vasoconstrictors, inotropes to increase the force of contraction of the heart, and obviously control of the underlying source of sepsis. At this point in time, I'd like to take a brief break for a word from our sponsor, the United States Navy. Welcome back. Um, I'd like to tell you a little bit about where I'm getting the source for this information. It's actually a textbook uh, that I've put together called Pre-Hospital Drug Therapy uh, that's being published by Elsevier. And if you're in the pre-hospital arena, uh, you'll probably, it's, it's going to be released at uh, EMS Expo coming up um, next month at Baltimore. It's getting back to our case. We're talking about the, the pharmacology, the four different types of shock. And I'd like to introduce first about talking about a case of hypovolemic shock. And if you imagine that you are uh, taking care of a, a young male who has a gunshot wound to the abdomen and he presents um, with um, uh, hypotension, the etiology of there of what the course, what the uh, source of the shock is most likely um, going to be hypovolemic shock. Uh, septic shock from an intradominal infection is really unlikely in the acute phase and it typically requires days to develop. Now a drop in blood pressure due to acute hemorrhagic shock requires a blood loss of approximately 30% of the circulating volume. Now what's important to keep in mind is that about a third of your blood can spill on the floor 
prior to seeing the classic symptoms of shock that we typically think of are things like tachycardia and blood pressure. So what happens between 0% blood loss and 30% blood loss is that the patient is compensating. One thing that I try to get my residents to avoid saying that is patient is stable because in a case like this where you've got a gunshot wound to the abdomen and a patient presents in shock, they could have lost 25 or say 28% of their blood volume and still be presenting with reasonably normal vital signs, but you would not say that that patient is normal. Once they cross that threshold where they can no longer compensate, and typically it's about 30% of blood volume loss, they now present with hypotension and typically tachycardia. Well, how much blood does this represent? Well, typically, blood volume is roughly 7% of one's ideal body weight. So if this person who's suffering from a gunshot wound is 80 kilograms, the circulating blood volume is roughly 7 uh, 7% of 80, or it's roughly 5,600 cc's. The circulating uh, volume loss uh, can cause a drop of blood pressure is about 1,600 to 1,700 cc's. In other words, more than three units of blood have to be lost prior to someone developing hypotension. Now clearly, treating the underlying cause in somebody with a gunshot wound is control of the hemorrhage. Superficial or extremity sources of bleeding typically can be controlled with direct pressure. Those of you in the military and in some civilian settings, tourniquets, and now there's these topical hemostatics such as quick clot that have been, been used with great success by uh, the U.S. military. Now the um, initial fluid is, is infused as a crystalloid. Normal saline is typically used uh, for initial resuscitations. There's a lot of interesting research looking at normal saline versus lactate rigors and typically how it affects uh, white blood cells. One of the, the things that's uh, convenient about normal saline is the compatibility with blood uh, to give blood transfusion. Uh, lactate ringers is also often used in certain circumstances depending on the preservatives used in blood and this is certainly uh, regional and you'd have to check with your local blood banks but in some blood preservatives lactate ringers is not compatible with the infusion of blood. Clearly giving fluids and blood needs to be given through large bore intravenous catheters and we've talked in a previous podcast that in the absence of not being able to get of those um, uh, intravenous uh, lines. You can certainly use an intraosseous line. Initial volume infused should be roughly 2 liters. The response to the initial volume should be assessed. Those patients who demonstrate improved perfusion with crystalloids are typically classified as responders. Responders can then further be broken down into rapid responders, or we call transient responders. Now rapid responders will need no further aggressive resuscitation. Rapid responders really have uh, no ongoing bleeding. The source of bleeding in rapid responders has typically been controlled either with pressure or the patient's own normal clotting mechanisms. Transient responders will improve as the intravascular volume is replenished. However, with ongoing bleeding manifestations of poor perfusion will eventually return. Transient responders will typically require blood transfusions to control the bleeding. Non-responders basically have uncontrolled hemorrhage, and these patients will require blood transfusion and control of the blood loss. Now we said the name of this talk is Pharmacology of Shock, but yet we're talking about intravenous fluids. Well, dosing of intravenous fluids is as important as dosing any other type of medication. There's some controversy exists that regards fluid administration in the victims of penetrating torso trauma. Control of hemorrhage for cavitary torso trauma requires interventions out of the scope of practice of most people. 
um, unless you're a surgeon. But the best opportunity for hemostasis is the victim's clotting mechanisms. Now, aggressive fluid resuscitation to restore normal blood pressure results in dislodgement of the fragile clot. Then bleeding resumes. The platelets and coagulation proteins that are consumed in the formation of the clot are then lost. And as you lose these viable clotting factors, the, the patient's, the, the, their own body is more predisposed for ongoing bleeding as you continue to limit platelets and coagulation proteins. And they become further diluted as aggressive fluid resuscitation continues. In addition, large volumes of unwarm fluids will result in hypothermia. And this has led to the idea of hypotension resuscitation or limited resuscitation. And these are terms that are you really used to describe fluid algorithms that are used to restore systolic blood pressure to subnormal levels, not normal levels. After controlled hemorrhage, uh, standard once you've controlled that bleeding, then you can go to standard endpoints for resuscitation. Now we know the idea of permissive hypocapnia in some circles in regards to mechanical ventilation, and this is similar to that in permissive hypotension. Now, one protocol for hypotension resuscitation guidelines um, uh, tries to achieve and maintain adequate perfusion assessed by four criteria. And this is fluid is administered in volumes to achieve one of these four criteria, and that is consciousness as evidenced by uh, someone following commands, a palpable radial pulse, a systolic blood pressure of 90, or a mean arterial blood pressure of 60. And if you're in the military, this is actually outlined in the, uh, you can probably get this certainly online, the uh, manuscript Emergency War Surgery, 3rd United States Revision, Department of Defense, published in 2004. So you do a limited resuscitation to one of those four endpoints. And let's review those again. Patient is conscious and following commands, or patient has a palpable radial pulse, or the patient has a systolic blood pressure of 90, or the patient has a mean arterial pressure of 60. Now, I want to give an example for those of you who are a little bit skeptical about this idea of um, um, limited resuscitation or permissive hypotension. I want you to take a bottle of water and empty half of that bottle of water out. Now you've got half a bottle of water. Now, if you're an optimist, it's what half full. If you're a pessimist, it's half empty. Now, take a knife and just stab it once or twice. Now your bottle is leaking and you're trying to keep that fluid in there. So what do you do is now start squeezing the bottle and as you squeeze the bottle what happens is you're increasing the pressure uh, of that fluid on the walls of that vessel. But what happens to the water that's that's in the water? It's starting to fire out of those um, uh, traumatic incisions or stab wounds you made to that bottle. And this is what you have, and this is what's been described by uh, the landmark papers by Maddox's group in New England Journal of Medicine, that in cases of penetrating trauma, that there may be some benefit in permissive hypotension, much like stabbing that bottle of water. If you don't believe me, stab the bottle of water, squeeze it, increase the pressure in that bottle of water, but make sure you have a change of clothes because you're going to get a lot of that water on you as it comes flying out and squirting all over you and all over the floor. Now I don't want to make a very large talk about the use of packed red blood cells and we've did, and we have talked previously in some podcasts about limiting transfusions um, 
red blood cells uh, are really designed for oxygen carrying capacity. Uh, there are other measures of volume, and the military, uh, in their experience, has really changed our modern perception of how we give blood. Um, and they've done some fascinating work with one to one to one component therapy, meaning basically giving whole blood. Uh, we've typically in the past have given four or five units of packed red blood cells and then we start thinking about giving some plasma and then we start thinking about giving some platelets. Uh, but there's been some interesting things written um, by the military and, and by the Institute for Surgical Research uh, about changing our paradigms for that. But that's not what we're going to talk about in, in this podcast. Let's assume for the sake of discussion that you feel this patient does have an indication for transfusion. Well, in standard transfusion therapy, the greatest risk is ABO incompatible blood transfusions. Now, ABO incompatibility may not be a concern in a trauma situation or in a pre-hospital or a field military situation because type O blood may be all that's available. Uh, information of a patient's blood type and testing may not be practical in an emergent trauma situation. Um, uh, and in, for those situations, only universal donor blood or type O is available. There are four types of blood, as we know. There a, there's O, A, B, and AB. Type A has the A antigen on the red cell surface. Type B has the B surface antigen. And type AB has both the AB antigen. Now the optimal unit of blood available for a um, emergent transfusion where there's no time to transfuse is O RH negative. Now the RH status of red blood cells infused is of no consequence for the male patient or the female patient without the possibility of future pregnancy. However, in females with the possibility of future pregnancy, RH positive blood should be avoided. RH negative patients who receive RH positive blood develop antigens or antibodies, I'm sorry, against the RH factor in approximately 80% of the cases. And the seroconversion which occurs can uh, risk a subsequent pregnancy when an RH negative mother becomes pregnant with an RH positive fetus. And the fetus may suffer from chronic hemolysis disease of the newborn uh, when a, uh, a woman has been transfused uh, who is uh, RH negative given RH positive blood. Now that we've completed that discussion on uh, some hypovolemic shock related to gunshot wounds and, and uh, hemorrhagic shock, let's have another uh, word from the sponsor. At this point, I'd like to talk about cardiogenic shock. And now you're taking care of a 65-year-old male who's been experiencing chest pain. You get some history from his wife, and she describes he has a history of angina. And um, 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 he has been previously evaluated about five years ago with a cardiac cath and is found to have critical narrowing of one of his coronary arteries. At that point, five years ago, they placed a stent, and he's been symptom-free at that time. The day that you actually see the patient, um, uh, he's um, um, complaining of chest pressure, chest pressure, which he says is nothing like he's ever experienced, and he is short of breath. Um, uh, there's an, somewhat an uneasiness about him. It started about 90 minutes ago. His extremities are cool, and his radial pulse is present. He does have prominent external jugular veins, his heart rate is somewhat fast at 104 beats per minute, and his blood pressure is only 86 over 58. He's breathing 22 times a minute. And you listen to him and he's got rails uh, are present in his lungs bilaterally. Well, the first question you ask yourself is, is this guy in shock? And clearly the answer is yes. And the next question is, is the nature of shock hypovolemic, cardiogenic, neurogenic, or septic? 
basically, what's the etiology of this shock? Well, he's got no GI blood loss, he hasn't been shot, he's not dehydrated, he's complaining of chest pain, he has a history of a stent, seems kind of likely it'd be cardiogenic. He really has no reason that you can tell that he's got septic shock, I don't know, maybe he's got urosepsis or something like that that we haven't stumbled upon, and he hasn't had any any kind of reason to give you his neurogenic shock history, so you're suspecting this guy's having some sort of cardiogenic cause, uh, most likely from an acute coronary syndrome. Well, cardiogenic shock is really inadequate perfusion secondary to pump failure, uh, and the most common cause of that is myocardial infarction. Basically what happens is myocardium loses its ability to effectively contract. Now there are other factors that can result in cardiogenic shock. One that typically is not thought of as cardiogenic shock, as it's often associated with trauma, is a pericardial tamponade. Now, that's an example of a mechanical source of cardiogenic shock. Other mechanical factors can be severe cardiac valvular disease or dysfunction can result in cardiogenic shock. And when you have severe valvular disease, the problem that really develops is that blood does not really maintain a unidirectional flow through the heart. It, Due to valvular incompetencies, the blood kind of sloshes to and fro during the cardiac cycle across the dysfunctional valve, and then, then tissue perfusion is negatively impacted by this inefficient movement of blood in a non-unidirectional through the unidirectional flow through the heart. Major clinical features of cardiogenic shock are evidenced in this patient, particularly are inadequate tissue perfusion, and this is manifested by vasoconstriction, delayed capillary refill, and a decreased mental uh, metal capacity. Additional features can be found as the pulmonary congestion. In cases of left ventricular dysfunction, the heart's not really able to propel blood in a forward uh, direction efficiently. Now, the mortality rate for cardiogenic shock is pretty high. Um, uh, Hollenberg and colleagues back in 1999 uh, uh, quoted that the mortality rate for cardiogenic shock is between 50 and 80 percent. Risk factors for death with cardiogenic shock. Uh, complicating myocardial infarction uh, in include problems such as age, previous MI, cold clammy skin, and oliguria. The best outcomes for cardiogenic shock are achieved in those patients in whom the cause of cardiac dysfunction could be reversed quickly. For patients who are having acute myocardial infarction, this is best achieved by rapid myocardial revascularization. Now, how do you proceed in the patient that we're talking about here? Well, if he's having an acute myocardial infarction, uh, or what we typically call nowadays is STEMI, or ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, typically the uh, initiation of aspirin, uh, uh, 662 to 325 milligrams of non-enteric coated aspirin, um, patients suspecting having STEMI, unless you've got some sort of contraindication. Now, I said non-enteric coated uh, formulation is best because that results in a more rapid uh, buccal mucosal absorption. No big shock about giving somebody aspirin. Fibrinolysis is reserved typically for patients not in cardiogenic shock. Uh, of course, you're giving the patient oxygen, giving the patient IV access, but you need to be very careful, particularly in this type of patient, to avoid excessive fluid administration. Remember, we've already said this patient um, is, is likely experiencing some element of, of congestive heart failure and uh, uh, over-aggressive or over-infusion of the intravenous fluids will probably aggravate the patient's pulmonary condition. 
One thing that's often not thought of but needs to be considered, at least we're going to consider here, is the impact of pain. Pain can have significant negative impact on your patient's cardiovascular status. Pain increases say, the sympathetic output. It increases, and that increased sympathetic output will increase oxygen demand on the heart. It'll increase the preload and afterload. Uh, morphine uh, could and should be used, but it should be used judiciously. Typically, these are given intravenously. Intramuscular administration uh, may lead to some variable absorption. Now, morphine is metabolized in the liver, and in shock, the poorly perfused liver may not break morphine into its glucuronide metabolite uh, uh, as readily as usual, and the result is you could have an increased duration of action of the morphine. Now, fentanyl in low doses may be uh, considered in lieu of morphine under these circumstances. Now, in patients with cardiogenic shock due to cardiac ischemia, nitroglycerin is not indicated. The hypotension may be uh, exacerbated by the vasodilatory effects, and, and the use of beta uh, adrenergic blocking drugs should also be limited. Uh, these products should be initiated only after resolution of the state of hyperperfusion. So if, if you have a patient who's in cardiogenic shock, they're having a, a, a STEMI, acute coronary syndrome, uh, nitroglycerin may not be a good choice because of its aggravation hypertension and beta blockers should be reserved until after you reverse the cardiac ischemia. Now assessment of the failing heart can occur by a variety of, re uh, a variety of methods. Uh, perhaps the most common nowadays is the uh, echocardiogram. Uh, certainly the pulmonary artery catheter provides you some information um, depending on your your comfort with a PA catheter or your, your beliefs on uh, whether they impact outcomes or not. But when we look at cardiovascular physiology and we look at drugs to impact cardiac physiology, we have to consider the cardiac rate which is chronotropism. And chronotropism, the way you can remember that is a, a chronogram is, is really a watch or a clock, and that's where um, uh, chronotropism, uh, chronotropism comes from. And the amount of blood flowing through the left ventricle is really directed, directly affected by the heart rate. Now, of course, the heart rate is can be easily measured. Now, the force of contraction of the uh, squeezing heart can't be as easily me measured, and that's really defined by inotropism. So, our drugs are really looking at chronotropism, i.e. the heart rate, and inotropism, how what can we do to make that heart squeeze more tightly. Now, the contractility of the heart is not readily measured, and as a surrogate, we typically will accept a calculated cardiac output recognizing that cardiac output is influenced by a variety of other factors. When we look at things such as systemic vascular resistance, which is really the force which the heart is beating against, and the preload is which, what is the um, uh, end diastolic volume of the left ventricle and what's going to determine really the stroke volume. Now things such as chronotropism, i.e. the heart rate, the inotropism, how, how tightly the heart squeezes blood out of it, and systemic vascular resistance, the force of the vascular tree that the heart is pumping against, may all be manipulated by a variety of drugs, and typically these are drugs called adrenergic agents. Excuse me, there are several classes of adrenergic receptors, okay, now these exist throughout the sympathetic nervous system. Now we talk about a drug and a receptor, this is kind of a lock and key phenomena. The receptor is typically like the keyhole of a key, has a very specific three-dimensional configuration. And these drugs, or these adrenergic agents, uh, have a very specific three-dimensional form to them, and they fit into that key. Um, now, adrenergic agents, you know the word adrenaline. Okay, That's where the word adrenergic comes from. Adrenaline is typically epinephrine. 
The sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight uh, system and it's always active to some degree. There are four major categories of adrenergic receptors. Alpha 1, alpha 2, beta 1, and beta 2. Stimulation of each of these types of receptors results in predominant effects. When you stimulate an alpha-1 receptor, this results in an increase in peripheral vascular resistance, and that results in increased blood pressure and obvious vasoconstriction. Alpha-2 receptors result in uh, inhibition of norepinephrine release. Um, beta-1 receptors, now it's easy to keep these straight because there's beta-1 and beta-2s, and sometimes people forget which tissues they're found on. Beta-1 is typically found on the heart, and that's easy to remember because you have one heart. Beta-2 is typically thought of uh, in uh, the lungs, and that's why you have two lungs. Now, stimulation of a beta-1 receptor results in increased myocardial contractility. The result there is a tachycardia um, as well, um, and increased squeeze of the heart. Beta-2, you see a slightly decreased peripheral vascular resistance. You may see some vasodilatation, but what they're really known for is bronchodilation. Typically, these are your bronchodilator drugs. So typically what you think of is, is what receptor would I like to stimulate and pick a drug that responds to that particular receptor. A patient whose heart is failing and would benefit from a positive inotropic effect and a positive chronotrope, so you're trying to get increased sque squeeze, increased heart rate, would typically be well served by a drug that has beta-1 uh, adrenergic receptors and perhaps um, Two adrenergic drugs that are most commonly used in cardiogenic shock are dobutamine and dopamine. Now, dobutamine is an agent of choice to improve cardiac output in cardiogenic shock for patients with systolic blood pressures of greater than 80 millimeters of mercury. Uh, now, dobutamine's major effect is increasing cardiac contractility and cardiac output. Although dobutamine does have some beta-1 stimulatory effects, it does not raise the heart rate significantly. Now this is what's typically touted with dobutamine, but as you get to higher doses, you will see some tachycardia with dobutamine and even it creating a little bit of ectopy. Avoidance of tachycardia and cardiogenic shock is important to minimize the heart's oxygen demand. Now this is a recurring point when we talk about what heart rate or increased heart rate does. This is why people are often put on beta blockers who are undergoing uh, surgery and who are at risk is to avoid tachycardia. One thing you don't want to do to a heart in crisis is increase the heart rate. You don't want it to require more oxygen and that's one of the nice things about dobutamine. Increase squeeze without hopefully without increasing the heart rate. Dobutamine also does not raise the systemic vascular resistance. What does this mean? Well, it's not causing vasoconstriction to the peripheral vascular tree, and therefore this heart in crisis, this failing heart, gets a little bit more squeeze, but the drug is not causing increased vascular resistance, which means the heart doesn't have to push as hard against that squeezing vascular tree out in the periphery. And as we said, patients should be watched closely for tachyarrhythmias or hypotension with dobutamine. Dobutamine should be used in caution in patients with atrial fibrillation. Dobutamine increases the atrioventricular conduction, or it's called the dromotropic effect. Um, dromotropism is uh, influencing the velocity along the cardiac conduction system. I would refer you to a, a, a drug book or a guideline for actual dosing of dobutamine. 
for medical legal reasons, I don't want to include it in the podcast. I think it's perhaps you best you refer to a reference text. Having written a pharmacology book, I will tell you that there is great effort and and and. Uh, um, detail put into making sure that right doses are, are put in, in those kind of texts. Now for patients in cardiogenic shock with systolic blood pressures of less than 80 millimeters, dopamine is, is a reasonable drug. Dopamine has beta-1 effects as well as alpha-1 effects. So the beta-1 is that it's stimulating the heart, making an increased squeeze. Uh, alpha, and that means it's causing, alpha-1 is causing vasoconstriction. So it's going to give an increased squeeze and give an increase in the blood pressure. The alpha-1 stimulation produces vasoconstriction, which aids in maintaining the blood pressure. Now, the problem with dopamine is that in somebody who's having myocardial ischemia, that could be exacerbated because the dopamine will increase the heart rate and increase systemic vascular resistance. Now, what do you do with patients who are having cardiogenic shock that's refractory to things like dopamine? Um, uh, norepinephrine, also known as levofed, uh, is another potential drug. Now, levofed or norepinephrine is an alpha-1, alpha-2, and beta-1 agonist. Okay, It stimulates alpha-1, alpha-2, and beta-1. This results in peripheral vasoconstriction, and that's the predominant clinical effect of, of using norepinephrine. Now, there's a class of drugs that are used to treat heart failure that aren't really considered adrenergic, and that's uh, drugs called the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, and these are drugs such as milrinone and amrinone. Uh, it's an agent, these are drugs that have a positive inotropic effect and results in peripheral vasodilatation. Uh, and since they're using through it, working through a different receptor mechanism than, say, dobutamine, if dobutamine's not working, then plan A doesn't work, don't stick with plan A, go to plan B. Um, and that's the beauty of the amrinone and milrinone drugs, that the mechanism is not the same as the adrenergic agent. Therefore, it, uh, it should be considered for patients who have not demonstrated a response to drugs such as dobutamine, dopamine, or norepinephrine. Now, due to the vasodilatory effects, patients need to be closely watched for the development of hypotension. Another uh, possibility is, uh, particularly with the amrinone, is the development of thrombocytopenia. Now, in the treatment of cardiogenic shock, once the patient's volume status uh, has been confirmed uh, through whatever mechanism you're using, peripheral vasodilators then can be used in an attempt to decrease the systemic vascular resistance in the patient with a failing heart. And drugs that are typically used or could be used are drugs like nitroprusside or nitroglycerin. Uh, but these drugs need to be used with great caution to the fact that they do cause hypotension. Now, whenever using a vasoconstricting drug or an adrenergic drug, you need to be very careful and make sure that you're using reliable intravenous access. The reason for this is that if the patient infiltrates their IV and you're using these powerful vasoconstrictors, they will actually cause significant soft tissue necrosis and damage. And if that occurs, one needs to first recognize it, stop the infusion, but in order to avoid necrosis of the infiltrated area, subcutaneous infiltration um, um, with uh, phentolamine, typically 10 milligrams of phentolamine mixed in about 5 to 10 milliliters of normal saline can certainly be used to help uh, treat and prevent some of the tissue loss. Now if we talk about neurogenic shock, 
Neurogenic shock is shock that's due to loss of sympathetic tone due to an interruption of the descending sympathetic pathways of the spinal cord. Now the vascular tone is lost and this results in vasodilation in the areas of the body now without sympathetic input. It's a relative lack of volumes available to fill the vascular tree. So what happens is, is that you basically lose your sympathetic tone, you get systemic vasodilatation. And even though you haven't dropped an ounce of blood, what happens is the vessel is larger with the same amount of fluid and that results in a relative hypovolemia. Uh, the preload is diminished and that results in your shock. In addition, uh, sympathetic pathways, the heart may be interrupted and the heart can lose some significant inotropic and chronotropic support, so therefore you've got a relative hypovolemia, a heart that's not beating as fast, and perhaps even a heart that's not beating as strong. In addition to that is now you've got, since the sympathetic pathways have been interrupted, the parasympathetic tone, the parasympathetic tone of the heart through the vagus is now unopposed. The initial treatment for these patients is uh, the uh, resuscitation with uh, intravenous fluids to restore the uh, uh, preload. Occasionally we need to provide the patient with adrenergic agents. Drugs that are typically used for this are drugs like phenylephrine, also known as neosinephrine. This is a nice drug for the treatment of neurogenic shock because it is a pure alpha agent. Uh, and therefore if you lose your sympathetic tone and you dilate your blood vessels, you can simply um, uh, use the patient on phenylephrine uh, and basically have a drug that is acting just on uh, the blood vessels and resulting in vasoconstriction. Uh, other drug that can be used typically for this is uh, dopamine. Uh, not really wouldn't be my first drug of choice for something like this, but the nice thing about dopamine is, is that people in emergency rooms are typically much more common using, uh, comfortable using dopamine than they would uh, using a drug like phenylephrine. So what would happen is I would probably start dopamine in the emergency room where the nurses are comfortable with that, get the patient transported to an intensive care unit, and then you're in a setting there where nurses are typically more comfortable or, or more familiar with using phenylephrine and then changing phenylephrine with, once we're in the intensive care unit. Septic shock, we've talked about that in previous uh, podcasts uh, about the... Uh, um, it's more of a distributive type of shock. We've talked at depth about the mechanisms and etiology as well as the different fluid and vasopressor combinations uh, used uh, in the treatment of septic shock. I hope you find this information useful. My name is Jeffrey Guy. Like I said, I'm the Associate Professor, uh, Associate Professor of Surgery at uh, Vanderbilt and the Director of the Burn Center. Um, this podcast can be found on iTunes by going to the iTunes store and just doing a search on ICU rounds or you can get it directly from the website on www.icrounds.com. My uh, website for uh, our burn residents and so forth is at uh, www.burndoc.com. Those of you who sent me an email, I do appreciate the feedback as well as the ideas and don't think that I'm not paying attention to your ideas. I am pulling many of the articles that you folks have sent me and, and preparing those podcasts as we speak. Thanks for listening. Have a good night.